Hello, everyone. This is Father Bill Nicholas, and this is Faith, Hope, and History. Greetings and welcome, everybody. It is Friday, April 15th of the year 2022. It is tax day here in the United States. But it was also on this day, I'll work my way backwards through history, in 1942, actor Walter Matthau joined the army asking the military to rescind his brother's draft and take him instead. A story I'm not sure many people know about the actor Walter Matthau, who is known for The Odd Couple and many other comedies and other films as well. One of the great uh, Hollywood actors. It was on this day... In 1912, at 2.20 a.m., the RMS Titanic sank in the North Atlantic, taking over 1,500 lives, having struck an iceberg the night before. On April 14th, after just a couple of hours, the Titanic sank in the North Atlantic. It was on this day in 1843 that the author Henry James who was the author of Daisy Miller, an American author, was born in New York City. But perhaps most notably, it was on this day in 1865 that Abraham Lincoln, having been shot at Ford's Theater the night before, succumbed to his wound and died, becoming the first president of the United States to be assassinated. And it was on Good Friday in 1865 that Abraham Lincoln was shot Good Friday, April 14th. This is Good Friday, April 15th, so we kind of are off by a day, but he was shot on the 14th and died on the 15th. And today is the anniversary of his death, which occurred on Holy Saturday morning in 1865. And today we remember his death on Good Friday, 2022. And it is Good Friday. And it's a day in which we remember the death of Jesus. And every year, when the church comes together throughout the world to celebrate the liturgy of the Lord's Passion, part two, if you will, of the holy, sacred triduum celebrations leading into Easter, our highest holy days, the church throughout the world will gather and hear, prayed, read, in some cases chanted, in all places proclaimed, The Passion of Jesus According to the Gospel of John. Last Sunday, we heard The Passion According to Luke on Passion Sunday or Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, we hear The Passion According to the Other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in a three-year rotation. But every year, with no rotation, on Good Friday, we hear not The Passion According to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but always The Passion According to John. And it's a thing to remember and something to take note because while on Sunday, Palm Sunday, we also call it Passion Sunday, the following Friday is not called Passion Friday. It is called Good Friday. And I I know a great many Catholics who for the last, I guess, almost 20 years, not quite 20 years, ever since Mel Gibson made his film, the Passion of the Christ, many Catholics like to spend a part of Good Friday watching that film. And why not? 
It's Good Friday, the day Jesus died. You watch the film by Mel Gibson about Jesus dying on the cross. However, I always like to remind people that Mel Gibson's film is a very violent film, and it focuses very much on the suffering of Jesus. In other words, the passion of Jesus. It's the passion of the Christ. But there's a different take that the Gospel of John has with the passion of Jesus. And while we focus on the suffering of Jesus on Passion Sunday, we don't necessarily focus on the suffering of Jesus on Good Friday. So I always like to encourage people, and ultimately people can do what they want, but I always like to encourage people, Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday is the day for Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. But Good Friday has a different focus and a different angle. It talks and focuses on the sacrificial element of Jesus dying on the cross as our high priest and as the sacrificial Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world. But the passion, according to John, approaches the passion of Jesus very, very differently. And the thing to note is it does not accentuate Jesus' suffering. It's kind of a given because he's obviously dying on the cross. He's being crucified. But in many ways, John's gospel sets up the passion of Jesus very much as a coronation ceremony in which the king of glory is crowned and glorified and enthroned in and through his crucifixion. And all throughout the gospel of John, Jesus is making reference to that. The time has come, or the hour is at hand, when the Son of Man will be lifted up. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And the portion of John's gospel in which the Passion takes place is called the Book of Glory. You look in any Bible, and it's a scholarly notation, but the first half of the Book of John is called the Book of Signs. The second half is called the Book of Glory, not the Book of Passion or the Book of Suffering, but the Book of Glory, because John portrays the crucifixion very much as a glorification of Jesus. And as a glorification, it is very much a coronation ceremony. And I'll explain how. Well, first of all, there are things that are very, very different from the Passion, according to John, that make it stand out as different from the Passions, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. First of all, Jesus commands Judas to depart and be quick about what he is to do. He hands him the morsel and then commands Judas Iscariot to leave and go about his business. And once Judas has left, Jesus raises his eyes to heaven and says, Now the Son of Man is glorified. One can say at this point, Jesus has reached the point of no return. Things have been set in motion, and Jesus is the one who has set them in motion. Once Judas leaves, he says, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And he then proceeds to give his final words to his disciples after having washed their feet. But when Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, he does not pray in the garden. He does not say, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Earlier on, Jesus says, what am I to say? Let this cup pass from me. But it was for this hour that I was born. It was for this hour that I came into the world. He doesn't ask God that this cup pass from him. He is determined to fulfill the will of his Father in the Gospel of John. So there is no agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus goes out to the Garden, but he does not wait for those to come and arrest him. Rather, they are waiting for him to arrive. And Judas does not go up to kiss Jesus. It just simply says Judas led them, 
and Judas stands passively. He doesn't do anything. Jesus arrives and asks them who they are looking for. And when he identifies himself with that phrase, I am, his arresters fall down to worship, basically. Jesus has to remind them why they are there and says, if you come to arrest me, let these other men go. And when Jesus is arrested, he goes forth of his own free will. He's completely in control of everything that is happening to him. And you'll note, if you listen carefully to the Passion reading today, you'll note things are very different. Yes, Peter does deny Jesus three times and the cock crows. That is something that is common to all four Gospels. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is the silent, suffering servant. They ask him questions, and he does not respond. At most, he responds, you say that I am, or you say so, when he's asked, are you the, son of, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Are you the King of the Jews? But in the Gospel of John, where in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he is the suffering, silent, suffering servant, in the Gospel of John, I like to say he's the Messiah who won't shut up. He is not silent. He engages his interrogators. He engages Pontius Pilate in a discussion regarding truth, why he was brought into the world, what is the nature of his kingdom. Jesus is involved in this, and you can see it very much as set up like the questions that are asked of a king at his coronation. Questions that are put to the one to be crowned, and they respond. Very much there's that kind of exchange between Jesus and his interrogators. And then after that exchange, especially the exchange between Jesus and Pontius Pilate regarding truth, regarding the kingdom, regarding the power that Pontius Pilate has over him, Jesus is then taken and scourged. He is robed in royal colors, and he is crowned. Granted, it's a crown of thorns, but after the interrogation, the examination, if you will, he is then robed and crowned. And he's declared the king. Again, it's a mockery, but you see that process of coronation and enthronement that Jesus is undergoing. When Jesus is presented to the crowds, Pontius Pilate says, Behold your king. And the gospel goes on to say, that he seated Jesus on a throne or a bench called Gabbatha. It's a judgment throne. It's a judgment bench. So as Jesus is being condemned by the crowds, he is sitting on a throne of judgment. Again, the king of glory. The day of judgment is at hand as God is intervening for the redemption of the world. And while Jesus is in very much control, it's the others who are the unwitting Passive participants, Pontius Pilate, the high priest, the Sanhedrin, the crowd. So Jesus is interrogated, he's examined, he answers the questions, he's enrobed and crowned, and then he's presented to the crowd with the words, Behold your king. Now granted, the crowd does not say, God save the king, God save the king. Instead they say, crucify him, crucify him. But then, after Jesus is condemned, he's enthroned. And how is he enthroned? He's crucified. The cross is set very much as an enthronement. And whereas we see Simon of Cyrene in Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
helping Jesus carry the cross. In John, Simon is nowhere to be seen. He's not even mentioned. Jesus stalwartly carries that cross himself. And it says, by himself he carried it. Now, did someone help him? Did they not? Whenever people ask me those questions, I always answer the same way. I don't know. I wasn't there. But this is the way John is setting it up as he tells the story of Jesus' crucifixion. And Jesus is crucified, and with him two others, one on his right and the other on his left. And as the law of Moses would say, judgment always takes place in the presence of two witnesses. And so Jesus is now enthroned on the judgment throne He was on the judgment seat of Gabbatha, and now he is crucified at a place called Golgotha. And yes, there is kind of a play on the two words. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. That is Luke. He doesn't say, today will be with me in paradise. That is Luke. He doesn't say, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. That too is Luke. He doesn't say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is Matthew and Mark. We have three more of the seven last words of Jesus, and these are the ones found in John. What does Jesus do? He conducts unfinished business, holding court from his throne. First of all, darkness does not cover the earth. It does not give any notation of darkness covering the world. But rather, Jesus sees the fulfillment of Scripture, and John portrays the fulfillment of Scripture taking place as Jesus is conducting unfinished business from his throne. The soldiers divide his garments and cast lots for his seamless tunic to fulfill Scriptures, as John states. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, believe it or not, take a look, you'll see it, no one is at the foot of the cross, not even Jesus' mother. In the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the only people there for Jesus are standing at a distance because they're too afraid to come close. But it is in the Gospel of John that we have people present at the foot of the cross, and not just anyone. We have Mary Magdalene. We have the wife of Clopas. We have the sister of Jesus' mother. But also, it is only in the Gospel of John that we see at the foot of the cross Mary and John, however, In the Gospel of John, these two people are never identified. They are referred to only throughout the Gospel as the mother of Jesus and the disciple whom Jesus loved, or the beloved disciple. It's an interesting thing to note and an important thing to note. If we had only the Gospel of John to go on, we would not know the name of Jesus' mother. We know it because she's referred to in Matthew, and especially in Luke, but in John, she's in two episodes in the entire gospel, the wedding at Cana and the crucifixion. She's at the foot of the cross. And in neither of those stories is she ever identified. She's referred to as the mother of Jesus. The wedding at Cana, the mother of Jesus was there. The mother of Jesus said they have no wine. The mother of Jesus said, do whatever he tells you. And now at the foot of the cross, Jesus sees those at his feet two of which are the mother of Jesus and the disciple whom he loves. And what does he do? He says to his mother, woman, just as he referred to her at the wedding at Cana, woman, how does your concern involve me? My hour has not yet come. But now the hour has come, the hour in which he is lifted up. And he says to his mother again, woman, 
Behold your son, and to the disciple whom he loved, behold your mother. Now, popular tradition, of course, and there's nothing wrong with the tradition, states that John took care of Mary for the rest of her life. In simplistic terms, Jesus gave his mother to his best friend. But when you look at it in the more royal setting that John is presenting here, in a nutshell, he's basically declaring the mother to be a symbol of the church and putting that church into the hands of his beloved disciple, symbolizing the disciples. So the church is now in the care of the disciples, and that is where we continue to see the church down through the centuries. But not only that, if Mary, or in this case, the mother is a symbol of the church and the beloved disciple is a symbol of the disciples, then where in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is totally alone on the cross, in John, we could say that the entire church is in attendance at the foot of the cross. And that is exactly what we are doing as we gather on Good Friday to listen to this gospel narrative. Jesus conducts unfinished business as the entire church is at the foot of the cross, and Jesus places that church into the hands of his disciples. But not only that, when Jesus saw everything was completed, the Gospel of John says very clearly, to fulfill scripture, Jesus said, I thirst. Jesus said, I thirst. He did it to fulfill scripture. And it's almost like a final toast. When he had taken the wine, he said, it is finished. And he gave up his spirit, very much in control. And that last moment, I thirst with the wine that is offered to him. It's almost as if he's giving one final toast to the world before he dies, before he leaves it and fulfills his father's will in his death. And then, of course, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, in this case, come out of the woodwork and provide Jesus with a burial fit for a king. Again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he has to be buried quickly because it's the Sabbath. And the women come to the tomb on Sunday, the day after the Sabbath, to anoint the body. But in John, he's taken care of right when he's taken down from the cross. It says that he is presented, Nicodemus brings forth ointments that weigh a hundred pounds. Jesus is given the burial of a king. Jesus is embalmed to such an extent that I like to say it's a wonder he didn't rise from the dead right there. He's given the burial of a king. Now that he's been glorified. And so we see very much a coronation celebration. So in addition to this being tax day on April 15th, we celebrate Good Friday, which is also very much coronation day. This is the day that Jesus was crowned, enthroned, and glorified, which is why we call it Good Friday. And the focus is in that format, which is why I always say, today is not a day for Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. That is Passion Sunday. Today, it's Good Friday. Not only that, we see the Passover undertones as well. In the Gospel of John, he says more than once, that, that this took place on the preparation day for Passover. And on the preparation day, the lambs that would be used for Passover, the Passover meals, are being slaughtered in the temple. So Jesus is on the cross as these Passover lambs are being slaughtered in preparation for Passover. So again, Jesus is that Lamb of God, that Passover lamb, the Passover from death to life, from sin to grace, from the era of sin to the Messianic era and the salvation of the world. 
And all of this is a part of how John presents the death of Jesus. No mention of an eclipse of the sun. No mention of darkness. It's light. It's glory. It's good Friday. It's coronation day. And so it's something to think about as we celebrate this day. And as we come together as a church to hear the gospel of John proclaimed every year on Good Friday. But also it's a day in which we elevate our minds and our focus from the suffering, bloody passion of Jesus to the glorification, coronation of Jesus. The enthronement on his throne and being glorified himself, and in that, giving glory to God the Father. And so, I'm not going to belabor it for too long. I hope all those who are listening to this are planning on going or have already gone to celebrate with your parishes and through your parish, the church throughout the world, as the church gathers at the foot of the cross. Let us see ourselves in the mother of Jesus and the disciple whom Jesus loved. Let us see all the church standing at the foot of the cross, seeing the light shining in the darkness, seeing the glory of the incarnate word made flesh as we celebrate Coronation Day on this Good Friday. And for this Good Friday, given that this is the Coronation Day, I'd like to share something I've had for a number of years that was shared on the internet, and I wish I could take credit for it, but no, this is something I found. I wish I could give credit, but try as I might, I just find it, but there is really no credit given to this particular story, very much like the footprints in the sand story that we love to tell about Christ carrying you when you are troubled. This, like the footprints in the sand, just doesn't seem to have any credit uh, given to it. But uh, someone forwarded me this inspirational tale, and if I like something, I like to share it, so here it is. And it's something good to remember on this Good Friday. There was a certain professor of religion named Dr. Christensen, a studious man who taught at a small college in the western United States. Dr. Christensen taught the required survey course in Christianity at this particular institution. Every student was required to take this course his or her freshman year, regardless of his or her major. Although Dr. Christensen tried hard to communicate the essence of the gospel in his class, he found that most of his students looked upon the course as nothing but required drudgery. Despite his best efforts, most, uh, most students refused to take Christianity seriously. But this year, Dr. Christensen had a special student named Steve. Steve was only a freshman, but was studying with the intent of going on to seminary for the ministry. Steve was popular, he was well-liked, and he was an imposing physical specimen. He was now the starting center on the school football team and was the best student in the professor's class. So one day, Dr. Christensen asked Steve to stay after class so he could talk with him. How many push-ups can you do? He asked Steve. Steve said, I do about 200 every night. 200? That's pretty good, Steve, Dr. Christensen said. Do you think you could do 300? Steve replied, I don't know. I've never done 300 at a time. Do you think you could? Asked Dr. Christensen again. 
Well, I can try, said Steve. Can you do 300 in sets of 10? I have a class project in mind, and I need you to do about 300 push-ups in sets of 10 for this to work. Can you do it? I need you to tell me you can do it, said the professor. Steve said, well, I think I can. Yeah, I can do it. Dr. Christensen said, good. <clears throat> I need you to do this on Friday. Let me explain what I have in mind. Friday came and Steve got to class early and sat in the front of the room. When class started, the professor pulled out a big box of donuts. No, these weren't the normal kinds of donuts. They were the extra fancy big kind with cream centers and frosting swirls. Everyone was pretty excited. It was Friday, the last class of the day, and they were going to get an early start on the weekend with a party in Dr. Christensen's class. Dr. Christensen went to the first girl in the first row and asked, Cynthia, do you want to have one of these donuts? Cynthia said, yes. Dr. Christensen then turned to Steve and asked, Steve, would you do 10 push-ups so that Cynthia can have a donut? Sure. Steve jumped down from his desk to do a quick 10. Then Steve again sat in his desk. Dr. Christensen put a donut on Cynthia's desk. Dr. Christensen then went to Joe, the next person, and asked, Joe, do you want a donut? Joe said yes. Dr. Christensen said, Steve, would you do 10 push-ups so that Joe can have a donut? Steve did 10 push-ups. Joe got a donut. And so it went down the first aisle. Steve did 10 push-ups for every person before they got their donut. Walking down the second aisle, Dr. Christensen came to Scott. Scott was on the basketball team and in as good a condition as Steve. He was very popular and never lacking for female companionship. When the professor asked, Scott, do you want a donut? Scott's reply was, well, can I do my own push-ups? Dr. Christensen said, no, Steve has to do them. Then Scott said, well... I don't want one then. Dr. Christensen shrugged, then turned to Steve and asked, Steve, would you do 10 push-ups so Scott can have a donut he doesn't want? With perfect obedience, Steve started to do 10 push-ups. Scott said, hey, I said I didn't want one. Dr. Christensen said, look, this is my classroom. This is my class. These are my desks. And these are my donuts. Just leave it on the desk if you don't want it. And he put a donut on Scott's desk. Now by this time, Steve had begun to slow down a little. He just stayed on the floor between sets because it took too much effort to be getting up and down. You could start to see a little perspiration coming down around his brow. Dr. Christensen started down the third row. Now the students were beginning to get a little angry. Dr. Christensen asked Jenny, Jenny, do you want a donut? Sternly, Jenny said, no. Then Dr. Christensen asked Steve, Steve, would you do 10 more push-ups so Jenny can have a donut that she doesn't want? 
Steve did 10. Jenny got a donut. By now, a growing sense of uneasiness filled the room. The students were beginning to say no, and there were all these uneaten donuts on the desks. Steve also had to really put forth a lot of extra effort to get these push-ups done for each donut. There began to be a small pool of sweat on the floor beneath his face. His arms and brow were beginning to get red because of the physical effort involved. Dr. Christensen asked Robert, who was the most vocal unbeliever in the class, to watch Steve do each push-up to make sure he did the full ten push-ups in a set because he couldn't bear to watch all of Steve's work for all of those uneaten donuts. He sent Robert over to where Steve was so Robert could count the set and watch Steve closely. Dr. Christensen started down the fourth row. During his class, however, some students from other classes had wandered in and sat down on the steps along the radiators that ran down the side of the room. When the professor realized this, he did a quick count and saw that now there were 34 students in the room. He started to worry if Steve would be able to make it. Dr. Christensen went on to the next person, and the next, and the next. Near the end of that row, Steve was really having a rough time. He was taking a lot more time to complete each set. Steve asked Dr. Christensen, Do I have to make my nose touch on each one? Dr. Christensen thought for a moment. Well, they're your push-ups. You are in charge now. You can do them any way you want. And Dr. Christensen went on. A few moments later, a recent transfer student came to the room and was about to come in when all the students yelled in one voice, No! Don't come in! Stay out! Jason didn't know what was going on, but Steve picked up his head and said, No! Let him come. Professor Christensen said, You realize that if Jason comes in, you will have to do ten push-ups for him. Steve said, Yes, let him come in. Give him a donut. Dr. Christensen said, Okay, Steve, I'll let you get Jason's out of the way right now. Jason, do you want a donut? Jason, new to the room, hardly knew what was going on. Yes, he said. Give me a donut. Steve, will you do ten push-ups so that Jason can have a donut? Steve did ten push-ups very slowly and with great effort. Jason, bewildered, was handed a donut and sat down. Dr. Christensen finished the fourth row and then started on those visitors seated by the heaters. Steve's arms were now shaking with each push-up in a struggle to lift himself against the force of gravity. By this time, sweat was profusely dripping off his face. There was no sound except his heavy breathing. There was not a dry eye in the room. The very last two students in the room were two young women, both cheerleaders and very popular. Dr. Christensen went to Linda, the second to last, and asked, Linda, do you want a donut? Linda said very sadly, No, thank you. Professor Christensen quietly asked, 
Steve, would you do 10 push-ups so that Linda can have a donut she doesn't want? Grunting from the effort, Steve did 10 very slow push-ups for Linda. Then Dr. Christensen turned to the last girl, Susan. Susan, do you want a donut? With tears flowing down her face, Susan began to cry. Dr. Christensen, why can't I help him? Dr. Christensen, with tears of his own, said, No, Steve has to do it alone. I have given him this task, and he is in charge of seeing that everyone has an opportunity for a donut, whether they want it or not. When I decided to have a party this last day of class, I looked at my grade book. Steve here is the only student with a perfect grade. Everyone else has failed a test, skipped a class, or offered me inferior work. Steve told me that in football practice, when a player messes up, he must do push-ups. I told Steve that none of you could come to my party unless he paid the price by doing your push-ups. He and I made a deal for your sakes. So Steve, would you do 10 push-ups so Susan can have a donut? Steve very slowly finished his last push-up. With the understanding that he had accomplished all that was required of him, having done 350 push-ups, his arms buckled beneath him, and he fell to the floor. Dr. Christensen turned to the room and said, And so it was that our Savior Jesus Christ on the cross pleaded to the Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. With the understanding that he had done everything that was required of him, he yielded up his life. And like some of those in this room, many of us leave the gift on the desk uneaten. Two students helped Steve up off the floor and to a seat, physically exhausted, but wearing a thin smile. Well done, good and faithful servant, said the professor, adding, not all sermons are preached in words. Turning to his class, the professor said, my wish is that you might understand and fully comprehend all the riches of grace and mercy that have been given to you through the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He spared not his only begotten Son, but gave him up for all us all, for the whole church, now and forever. Whether or not we choose to accept this gift to us, the price has been paid. Wouldn't you be foolish and ungrateful to leave it lying on the desk? Kudos to whoever wrote this. Have a blessed Good Friday, a happy conclusion to Lent and Holy Week, and a blessed Easter. Thank you for listening, and with any luck, I will talk to you again soon.